The reading today comes from James, chapter 4, beginning at verse 13 to chapter 5, verse 6. And you can find it on page 1045 in your Bibles. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lizzie. Good evening, everyone. My name is Paul. If I haven't met you, it's good to see you. Please keep your Bibles open. I'm going to pray first. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, please give us ears tonight to hear you. Please teach us, encourage us, challenge us and correct us. And Father, please show us again how good and how glorious you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you believe it's uh, over 10 years since the global financial crisis? Uh, for those who remember, overnight the, the stock markets crashed 10%, 20%, 30%, 40%. A friend of mine used to work for Lehman Brothers and that company collapsed overnight. I was talking to him and he said this, I lost everything. I lost my income, my job, my house, eventually my wife. And then he said, we all lived so securely. We had our financial plans and we had our portfolios, but it was all gone in a flash. And then he said this, this was never part of of my plan. This was never part of my plan, he says. 
It's not just financial disasters. We live in a world of, of environmental disasters. Remember Black Saturday when suddenly that bushfire ravaged through that town? It destroyed homes. It destroyed possessions. It destroyed people. It was also sudden. It was also unexpected. But it happens every year, you know, a cyclone hits the Northern Territories or there's floods in Queensland, there's bushfires in the Blue Mountains and it's all so unpredictable. And yet, my friends, and yet we never seem to learn. Most of us here live lives as though we are in total control. We're also secure, aren't we? We've got our plans, we've got our strategies, we've got our goals, we've got our five-year life plan. We sit here and we decide when we're going to buy property and where we're going to buy property and where we're going to go holidays in September this year and what degree we're going to do and how long we're going to spend studying and where we're going to get a job and where we're going to live and who we might marry and we might have kids. All our plans. Because we're in control, aren't we? Put your hand up here if you know it's going to happen tomorrow or next week or, or next year. For those of us who are older, you might remember that back in 1987, the same thing happened. The, the stock market crashed 23% overnight. One man wrote this in Time magazine. I drove my Porsche anxiously into the city that day, desperate to see what I could salvage. And I smiled as I thought of that silly man I see regularly with his sandwich board saying, the end of the world is nigh. And he smiled because no one really believes that God's in control of stock market crashes, do they? No one really believes that God's in control of storms and floods and cyclones, do they? No one really believes that God's in control of your retrenchment or your illness, do they? Because God... God's just in control of the big things of life. God's in control of saving souls and his kingdom work and, and the church growth. But, but my life and your life, we're in control of that, aren't we? And we've got the dates in our calendar. We've got the vision statement in our workplace. We've got our spreadsheets. We've got our financial plans. But of course that's going to happen because we're in charge. What James believes in a God who's in total control of all things, the big and the little. And so my life and your life and my plans and your plans are in God's hands, not your plans. Ultimately, God will decide whether my plans will happen or not. Because God decides everything that happens in life. So here's my first point, be humble. Be humble, your life is in God's hands. Now look at verse 13, he's talking to Christian entrepreneurs, to Christian business people. He says, now listen. And the tone there is like a a father who's rebuking his child. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. These people are busy planning. They're planning their overseas trips and their next deal. They might call it strategic planning. They've set the time of departure today or tomorrow. They decided where to go, this or that city. They're going to spend a year there. They're going to do business and make a profit. So let me ask you, is planning wrong? 
Of course not. Is making a profit wrong? Of course not. Well, it depends how you make it. So planning isn't wrong. Profit's not wrong. The issue here is the attitude with which they plan. See in verse, verse 13, the, the when, the where, the how long, the why, they're all answered because they're so self-confident. But James is not just talking to Christian entrepreneurs. He's talking to the person here tonight who's signing up for their degree and planning to do a three-year course and then go overseas for a year and then get their first job and then their second job and maybe get married in five years' time and then have kids in ten years' time. This is the person here tonight who is planning your overseas trip for September this year. Italy, then Spain, then the UK and then back to Australia for a career change. It's one of the person sitting here tonight who maybe you're planning your long service leave. Maybe you plan to run a marathon in three months' time. You've got your training schedule all planned out. He's talking to all of us. Because we all plan. We plan our finances and our holidays and our exercise schedule and our retirement plans and our superannuation. And we schedule it all in. And God is not against planning. It's that self-confident, proud, arrogant planning. Do you spot that in verse 13? There's there's two little words in verse 13 that give it away. It says, now listen you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. We will spend a year there. We will carry on business and we will make money. That's the issue, that we will. The self-sufficient, I'm in charge kind of planning. And James says fundamentally that kind of planning is is sinful. That's the word used in verse 17. If anyone knows, then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, that is the good of bringing God into their planning and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. That's the sin, forgetting God, leaving God out of your plans, leaving God out of your picture. The sin is going about life without any reference to God. And can I say that we've just become accustomed to this? It's, it's a bit like, you know when you walk into your house or your unit and you open the door and there's this disgusting smell in your house. And you think, oh, the chicken is off or I've left the fish in the bin a bit too long. It's disgusting. You, you can spot that, that disgusting smell. But here's the reality that most of us live in our units or our homes with these underlying smells that we've just become accustomed to. We've got used to them. And a visitor walks in and goes, oh, that's a weird smell. But we're just used to it. That's the same with our arrogant planning. We just got used to it, controlling our lives. I reckon this sin is quite pervasive. So this week I've spent time planning a, a preaching program for the rest of this year. And I've spent time planning the winter escape. And I've spent time planning a three-year strategy and vision for our church. And I've spent time planning my holiday in July up at the Gold Coast. And I've even thought about my long service leave at the end of 2020. And God is kind of saying, Paul, what are you doing? Have you remembered that your life is in my hands? And your plans might not be my plans? We forget God and it's a sin. And a stronger word is used in verse 16. He uses the word evil. 
As it is, you, you boast in your arrogant schemes, or the word there's plans. You, you boast in your arrogant plans. All such boasting is evil. It is evil because we're ignoring God. Let me ask you, how do you feel when somebody ignores you? How do you feel when you're forgotten? How do you feel when you're left off the invitation list for something? How do you feel when you, those closest to you uh, act as though you're not there? It hurts, doesn't it? We plan everything as if we are God, and that is evil. And you see, the words of verse 14 are chilling words, but they are so, so true. He says, why? Why do you plan like this? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist or a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes That's what the Bible says, that life is like a mist, life is like a steam, life is like a vapour. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. It's like when you go for a run on a cold winter's morning and you can see your breath. It's there one minute, but then it's gone. That is life. It's transitory, it's short, it's uncertain. Job 7 says, my life is but a breath. As a cloud vanishes, so my life is gone. Psalm 39, each man's life is but a breath. Proverbs 27, do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring forth. Now, I might be a slow learner, but in my 49 years, God has brought that lesson home to me time and time and time again. When I was six, our family were planning a big holiday And my eight-year-old brother was diagnosed with cancer. That wasn't our plans. When I was 11, we were planning to move house. My dad had an operation that went horribly wrong and left him brain damaged. That wasn't our plans. When I was 20, my university degree was curtailed because my father died. That wasn't our plans. When I was 30, I was leading a youth group at a church in London. And this beautiful teenage girl, who was a strong Christian was there at youth group on a Friday and she died suddenly over the weekend. That wasn't our plans. At Bible college, I had a friend who was a brilliant preacher, a brilliant pastor. He was going to be a missionary, married with two kids, went to bed one night and died in his sleep. A friend of mine, godly Christian man, went out to Glebe one evening and was murdered. And time and time and time again, God has just taught me that life is short and life is uncertain and you don't know what's going to happen next. Please remember that. My life, your life, my tomorrow, your tomorrow is not in our hands. And we don't know how long God has given us here on this earth. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. See, verse 13, they said, we will. God says in verse 14, you don't even know. Verse 13, they planned for a year, and God said in verse 14, you cannot be sure the next day. Because life can change quite unexpectedly. So how should you plan? And the answer is that word humility. With great humility saying, you are not God. There are six little words in verse 15 that will change your life. Instead, you ought to say, If it's the Lord's will. If it's the Lord's will. That is humility. It's recognizing the hand of God, the control of God, the plans of God. 
God willing, or the Latin is Dea Valente, DV, God willing. Have you ever heard that? That's not a, a Christian touch wood. It's not a, a Christian superstition. It's not some pious jargon. That God willing is just this beautiful, humble recognition that God may or may not allow my plans to happen. For those who know me, you know I love biographies. And as you read the biographies of the, of the famous Christian missionaries, that was part of their vocabulary. If the Lord wills, we'll go to Australia. If the Lord wills, we'll, we'll go to Africa. If you know uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, he says, if the Lord wills, we'll go to Philippi. If the Lord wills, we'll go to Corinth. That's our plans, but it might not be your plans, God. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He didn't want to drink that cup, did he? But he prayed, not my will, but... Your will be done, God. And we say it all the time in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your plans come to issue, God, not mine. That's humility, God willing. But look at verse 15 again. He doesn't say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll do this or that. He adds three important words. If the Lord's wills, we will live. Now that's real humility. If it's the Lord's will, we'll wake up tomorrow with breath in our lungs. If it's the Lord's will, I'll be alive tomorrow. That's real humility to say, if I wake up tomorrow morning, thank you, God. Thank you that you are sovereign over all the days I have on this earth. That's real humility to learn to say, everything I enjoy today is from your sovereign hand, God, and everything I might enjoy tomorrow is also from your, your gracious sovereign hand, O oh God. And when you learn to live by that phrase, God willing, it is so liberating. As you plan your next holiday, you plan just going, God willing, that will happen. As you plan your next career move, God willing, that might happen. As you plan your... Next family thing, God, when that might happen. God, that's my desire, but it might not be yours. If you learn to live like that, write it, email it, speak it, live it. It is liberating because instead of seeing life as a continuing right, we see it as a daily mercy. That humble dependence on your God. Secondly tonight, be warned. Your wealth can drag you away from God. A word of warning here. These are probably the, the harshest words that James writes in this whole letter. And if you've been here for the series, he writes some pretty harsh stuff. There's another now listen in verse 1. Now listen, you rich people, you wealthy people, people with money. Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. And can I just say that here in Australia, we really are quite rich. All of us are rich. Now, if you're here tonight and you've got food in your fridge, you've got clothes on your back and you've got a roof over your head, you're in the top 25% rich people in the world. If you're here tonight and you've got a bank account with any money, you're in the top 10%. And I know that we like to compare ourselves with those living around us on the lower North Shore and think that we are struggling. But we're not. 
we're rich. And we amass more and more and more money and more and more and more stuff. And we can subtly find our security in our wealth and our identity in our money. And the Bible constantly reminds us of the, the dangers and the warnings of loving money. There's nothing wrong with being rich. Hear that rightly. There is nothing wrong or sinful with having money. It's what you do with your money and where you find your identity that matters. 1 Timothy 6 says, For the love of money, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. So James is writing here not to condemn wealth, but the sinful use of your wealth, the way you treat God, the way you treat others. Now listen, he says, you rich people. Weep and well because of the misery that's coming on you. you know, as I read lots of commentaries, commentary after commentary, people kept on saying, well, he can't be talking to Christians here because the language is quite harsh. I don't like that kind of language of weeping and wailing and, and being cursed in the day of slaughter. But here's my question. Why would James write five chapters to the church and suddenly for these little six verses start to talk to people who are outside the church who are not there to hear the letter being read? He's writing to Christians in the church who are rich, who are wealthy because James knows that money has always, always, always been a gift from God, but also very dangerous for your faith. Because we all love money. We're all sucked in by what money can buy. Bigger salary by it means more buying power, nicer restaurants, better clothes, bigger houses, more beautiful holidays. And he's saying, be warned, your wealth can cause you to wander. And James highlights three dangers, if you want, the first is selfish hoarding. It's there in verses 2 and 3. And I'll, I'll read it literally. It says, Your wealth is rotting, and moths are eating your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroding, and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. The last days are the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return. He says, in these last days, please don't hoard stuff. Now you've got wardrobes full of clothes that you're never going to wear and houses full of gold and silver and gadgets still in their boxes. And when you stand before the judgment seat of God, all that material stuff, you'll just leave it all behind. You know that, don't you? You know that your car will just be left to rust and you know that your clothes will go to Anglicare and you know that someone else will buy your house and renovate it in a style that you hate and you know that all your gold jewellery, all these relatives will appear out of nowhere to grab all the good stuff and they'll sit in the box somewhere else to rust. All that stuff, it is rotting, it is corroding. Please don't find your identity in stuff. These things do not last. Worse than that, in verse 3, it says, actually, they will testify against you. What does that mean? I think it means something like this. You don't want to stand before God on Judgment Day and for him to say, you know, it was perfectly okay for you to have your 70-inch TV in your bedroom. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you can afford that, then surely you could have afforded to buy a meal for someone who's poor and in need. 
And there's nothing wrong with renovating your house again. But surely if you can afford to do that, then you can afford to give some money to gospel work in Ethiopia. And there's nothing wrong with an overseas holiday or a new car. But if you can afford that, then surely you can give to gospel work in your local church. What he's saying there is that the way that we use our money actually reveals our heart. And God has given us wealth to enjoy life, but to live for his glory and preach his gospel and grow his church and help those really in need. So where's your heart right now? In the stuff that's in your house? I hate the word stuff. More stuff. Taking up more room in all these stuffed-filled house. Are you running after these earthly treasures, earthly possessions, or the heavenly ones? Now, please hear this rightly. There's nothing wrong with nice stuff, but that right balance is really important. And maybe you're here tonight and you're not wealthy, you're not rich. And if that is you, James would say to you, please don't covet, please don't be envious of other people's stuff. Please don't think that stuff will bring you happiness. Keep thinking heavenly treasures, not earthly ones. And the second problem he addresses here is exploitation. It's there in verse 4, defrauding the workers, because money brings power, and power can bring exploitation. He says, verse 4, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Just so you understand, in James's day, the, the workers in the field were reliant on being paid at the end of every day. They didn't get paid for their work that day. They had no food. That's why we pray, give us today our daily bread. And James is very blunt. He says, look, your money has gone to your head. Your money brings you power and you are exploiting people. You're abusing people. You're trampling on people who are poorer than you. And according to verse 4, God sees and God hears and God will judge. Deuteronomy 24 says this. Do not take advantage of a hard worker who is poor and needy. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they're poor and they're counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you'll be guilty of your sin. That's what James is saying here. God hears. God sees. God sees the way that you exploit other people because of your riches. Now, you might be sitting here tonight thinking, oh, actually, I've got no workers. I don't employ anybody. I- I'm okay. Are we? Have you ever thought about all the people that you exploit all over the world because of the lifestyle that you like? Now, when was the last time you, you actually thought about, thought carefully about who you're exploiting by your desire to keep on buying cheap clothes that are mass-produced by sweatshops somewhere in the world. Because of your desire for cheap clothing, there's somebody out there who's been exploited and badly treated so you can live in luxury. What about the tea that you drink or the coffee that you drink or the chocolate that you eat, just so it's nice and cheap for us? But somebody around the world is being badly treated so that you can have all this nice stuff. So if we're Christians, we need to think carefully about the way that workers are treated here in Australia and overseas. He says down in verse 5, we live these self-indulgent lives. 
You've lived on earth in luxury, he says. We really have. And in self-indulgence. You ever thought about that? You wanted new clothes, you go out and buy it. You want a new gadget, you just order it online. You're tired, you fly for weeks holiday in Fiji or ski in Japan. And we have what we want, when we want it, and we give no thought to God, his kingdom, or to people in need. And James gives a brilliant example in verse 5. He says, you fatted yourself in the day of slaughter. And we're supposed to imagine these, these cattle in the fields and they're living a nice life of cattle luxury. And they're being fed the best food and they think they're really special and really important and they're oblivious to the fact that every day they're being fattened up, ready for the abattoir. And we can live blissfully unaware in this world that as we live our luxurious lives... We are fattening ourselves ready for the slaughterhouse. Because if our wealth means that we wander from God, if our wealth means that we drift from Jesus, if we reach the last day and our security is our money, not the Lord Jesus Christ, we're in real danger. There's a very fine line between living with life's basic necessities and living with unnecessary luxuries. And I know that we want a nice clear line, don't we? God, give us that line. And he doesn't. He just wants us to store treasures in heaven, not on earth. But I do think that if he were to draw that line, most of us would be way over that line, including me. I don't even bother to ask the question, do I need this? And is this a good use of my money? And I find this hard because I like nice gadgets and I like nice food and I like clothes with labels. So if we're a rich Christian here today, we should be different. And I know the language is harsh, no misery, eat up your flesh like fire, cries of the harvester. And I think it's deliberately harsh because James needs his listeners to, to understand it is very, very hard to be rich and keep Jesus as your top priority. I've got a friend who's done it really well. He loves Jesus. He's incredibly rich. I've said for many years he's a millionaire. I've actually, actually reckon he's a billionaire. But he, lives in a, he lives in a really, really nice house in the UK. It's a beautiful house. He drives a nice car. He goes on nice holidays. But you would never know quite how rich he really is because he gives most of it away. I reckon he funds, by my last count, I reckon he funds single-handedly about 20% of the evangelical gospel workers in the UK. It's extraordinary. Why? Why is he like that? Because his identity and his security is in Jesus Christ and him alone. He does not find his identity in his money. Yes, God has blessed him. And he uses that money wisely. You know, here at Church by the Bridge, we are seriously behind budget this year. But it's never going to work just asking everyone to give more money. It's actually where your identity, where your security is, where your heart is. Do you, do you love Jesus? Do you see what gospel work could be done? So what's the answer to this problem of money? It's not just to be poor and give it all away. The answer is just to be sure and certain of your identity in Christ. 
to fix your eyes not on your possessions, but on your personal saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. It's very hard to read that verse and not think about Jesus. He says, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Now, he could be talking about the exploited workers. I think he's talking about Jesus. Now, Jesus, the condemned one. Why was he betrayed? Because Judas loved money. The murdered one, the innocent one who was sacrificed and murdered, why would he sacrifice for our sake so that if we're in Christ, we are incredibly rich? If you're here tonight and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are rich beyond imagination. And your identity and your satisfaction and your security is in him alone. So it doesn't matter whether you are filthy rich, whether you just get by or you're living in poverty, if you know Jesus Christ... You have the greatest riches in this world. So I think these two issues, this this planning and this wealth issue are so pertinent for us and for our church. So can I just say when you grasp this, when you're humble and when you're wise with your money, it is totally liberating. It liberates you from bitterness when your plans don't work out. And it liberates you from jealousy when you haven't got what someone else has got. And it liberates you from this awful disease called micromanagement and controlling my life. And it liberates you from self-reliance and it liberates you from getting trapped onto this lower North Shore mindset of needing more stuff and comparing and resenting and pride and self-sufficiency. It's just liberating. So please humbly come before God tonight and say, my life in your hands. And be very wise with whatever whatever he's given you. Give you a moment by yourself just to reflect on what God has said to you tonight. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that our lives are in your hands and not our own. Because your hand is strong and mighty. You are good and kind and compassionate. And your ways are always better than our ways. And Father, we are thankful for for the riches and the things that you bless us with. But help us, please, Lord, to use that stuff wisely and to find our true identity in our Savior. We ask that for Jesus' sake.